Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Toronto Today for September the 9th. Well, we start talking about, I, I think, not great messaging uh, from Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who we've had on the show and who've do- who's done amazing work. Look, not all of us have made it through every single day of this pandemic and done everything exactly right. But I'm concerned when a uh, medical officer of health says t- that fully vaccinated people shouldn't come into work, shouldn't uh, meet people in person, should limit their fully vaccinated fellow contacts. Isn't that why we got fully vaccinated? Knowing that nothing was going to be 100% safe from this point on, knowing that what we did was to, though, increase by a ton the level of safety we have. We talk about that in some context on the show this morning. Patricia Hiboulet is Canada's former number one tennis player. She held that uh, spot for a few years in the mid-1990s and really laid the pathway for the Bianca Andrescu's and the Layla Fernandez's. So with Layla's semifinal on tap tonight at the U.S. Open, youngest player in 16 years to get there, we chatted with Patricia Hiboulet about her experience on the tour and exactly how proud she is to have blazed at least a partial trail for all these great young tennis players we're watching right now on the women's side and the men's side. Dr. Chandy Jones joins us uh, from Indianapolis, uh, or rather Bloomington, Indiana, and he's a pediatric infectious diseases specialist, and we talked about COVID in kids. It's really important for parents right now, and he brings good news for those parents of kids who have asthma. It's very good news, as a matter of fact, and you'll want to hear it. And we do What Happened When with our esteemed news anchor, Dave Bradley, for today, September the 9th. It's all coming up next in the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for checking it out. Okay, debate tonight, 9 o'clock is the start, 9 p.m. for the English language debate. Uh, I'd like more conversation like the one yesterday uh, in the evening on the French debate about uh, basically... The question from Yves-Francois Blanchet, the uh, Bloc Québécois leader, turning on Justin Trudeau. And he got Trudeau had a couple moments where he was very fired up. But uh, the idea of Quebec's identity, the idea of Quebec's representation, not that that's not that that's a one trick party in the Bloc Québécois, but it's their biggest issue. It's what you know, what are you doing for us? To quote Janet Jackson, what have you done for us lately and what will you continue to do for us? That's not the name of the whole song, but you know what I'm saying. And Trudeau had to defend that he's a proud Quebecer. And Blanchette kind of <laughs> like his eyes didn't hit the ceiling rolling them and he smiled slightly. But it is it's it's probably and, and he did, he did concede to reporters Blanchette did in English after the debate. It's quote probably true. Trudeau was as much a Quebecer as he is. And at the same time. Justin Trudeau was born in Ottawa while his dad was prime minister. Now his parents divorced um, when uh, when Justin was five. And uh, and Margaret Trudeau, it's well documented, has lived um, quite a life. She lived quite a life. And uh, she moved to B.C., so he lived in B.C. for a good chunk of time. So you can understand Quebecers going, let me get this straight again. It, like, again, explain this to me. You were born in Ottawa, so that's still Ontario. It still is. I know it's a border city with Hull. Um, you were in BC for a good chunk of your youth uh, in those formative teenage years, but you're a Quebecer. Like it's tricky, right? And I think Blanchette had had uh, had some real pushback in almost claiming like like I'm more Quebec than you are. This happens from time to time. It's interesting to see if that ends up rearing its head tonight. 
Um, we'll talk about the debate with Michael Couture coming up in a little bit. Global News' own. You heard him in the uh, newscast right there with Dave. Uh, yeah, a ton of stuff on the sports sked, and we'll document some of that uh, a little later on in the morning. Let me go here because I heard it yesterday, and I... I just I'm really concerned about messaging. Messaging matters. Messaging from our our public health officials do matter. I realize it's not easy to be in these positions. I realize a lot of these people are in front facing positions and shows like like this one are calling them up for interviews and they're going in front of cameras and they're getting questions from people who studied professionally, to be honest, to be fair, in to, to ask hard questions, to ask pressing questions. And so all of us, I'm sure, I mean, I've been doing this a while now on this radio station and you realize the doctors that you enjoy having on and the doctors that give back and the doctors you can have a good exchange with, the doctors you can test a little bit with your ideas and concepts, okay, to create good radio. Um, So you end up having your favorites. You have your favorite shows to listen to. You're listening to me right now. I appreciate that. But we also have our favorite guests and we try and bring a cross section of diverse opinion to it. I'm not just going to put people on that repeat government talking points. Admittedly, though, you do want elements of public health officials on shows and playing them in newscasts because, well, they're public health officials and this is what they're saying. Now, do they have what do you think? Do you think they're more likely to be overly cautious so they can say we did everything we did everything we could and we kept you as safe as possible? Or do you think they lean the other way and go, well, we want to give some of you your life back. We want to give some of you the freedom to choose how to risk mitigate and the freedom to choose if you're fully vaccinated, what risks you would like to take and what risk you don't. If you've got 20 families, let's say you've got 20 families on a street or at the end of a, a end of a cul-de-sac or living on the floor of a condominium building, whose policy do you choose? The one that's the bravest, the one that's the least concerned about COVID or the ones that are the most concerned, whether it's rational or not to be some, some families, I understand it. Immunocompromised kids living with uh, older parents. I understand that you have to uh, mitigate your risks differently. I would document that as schools are coming back right now, and this is the third day we're sending new kids back to school. There's two differences and two distinctions to make. The fully vaccinated family, I'm lucky enough to be a fully vaccinated family, a household of four. We've all got our shots. We're all healthy. There's no comorbidities. We're not seeing grandparents or people that are immunocompromised on a regular basis there. But I know that's not everybody. So I'm not saying let's all let's open it all up and do this and do that. I'm not. But when I hear what transpires yesterday from Dr. Lawrence Lowe, who, again, let me give him credit and let me give his department credit. He's pushed back against the province sometimes. He's pushed back and said, this isn't safe, so we're going to do it this way. He has said some things that are practically safe in Peel that basically we were asleep at the switch ad in Toronto or too foreboding or too influential or um, or, or too draconian. Uh, Lawrence Lowe said, no, it's cool with me. Halloween's a good example of that. Toronto cancels Halloween. John Tory and Eileen Davila cancel Halloween. You can't go door to door in outdoor air. Wait a minute. I thought outdoor air was safe. Doesn't matter. It's 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 at nighttime. Wait a minute. You want masks on all our kids anyway, and and, and rightly so at, at times. That's practical. They're going to be wearing masks and costumes outside and going door to door with candy. And all these people invented these great shoots and machines and, 
and uh, an, an apparatus to give you the actual candidate. Nope, 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 nope. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So what do you think happened when Toronto shelved Halloween? On a Saturday night, which was when October 31st was. I'll tell you what happened because I know it happened anecdotally. And guess what? Police know it happened also because they got called to these things. My neighbor's having a Halloween party right now. They're indoors. There's 30 people there. Get over here right away. How many calls do you think they got on a Saturday night? It was actually great weather. I remember it well. We had a really mild late October, early November. The right thing to do would have been to let the kids trick or treat. And if you don't want your kids to... Fine. Superb. Fantastic. That's okay. But if you wanted your kids to trick or treat, again, this is all pre-vaccine. We got a different story on our hands. Okay? So that's an example where Lawrence Lowe wasn't as alarmist and and actually uh anti the anti-data and anti-science as the city of Toronto happened to be on that occasion. So Lawrence Lowe says this yesterday, and it was greatly concerning to me. Because I worry that people will get the wrong message. He urged residents to continue working remotely if they can. And to avoid large indoor gatherings. Get ready for it. Even if you're fully vaccinated. Okay. Um, I went to a large outdoor gathering last night of 15,000 people at the Canada-El Salvador game. Many of you will go to Blue Jays games. Many of you are looking forward to going to Maple Leafs and Raptors games. Like, I don't know, a month from now, five weeks from now, you tell me what the situation is that's going to be differently. And are you making people worried that that's necessarily the case? And where are my parents right now who are fully vaccinated, 77 and 75, generally speaking, in good health for those particular ages? But will they eat inside a restaurant right now? No. If, if somebody invited me and said, hey, we haven't been to the keg in forever. Let's go Friday night. I'm going, hey, bring your parents along. I know that that's probably a no-fly zone for them right now. But when Lawrence Lowe, the medical officer of Health for Peel, makes these comments yesterday morning and says not only should fully vaccinated people work from home, not only should they um, avoid large indoor gatherings, but also reduce your contacts, your fully vaccinated contacts. What? Excuse, one more time round? This all pops and buzzes from here. Tell me that again. Come on. Come on. We're at we're at a strong, strong level of vaccination. OK, I got it. There is a Delta driven fourth wave happening. I wouldn't say exclusively for unvaccinated people, but it's almost that it's mostly unvaccinated people going into ICUs, going into hospitals. I can go on and on. So his quote, and I will play you some audio in a second from it. I know for those that have gotten both doses of vaccine, the advice to reduce context may be difficult to hear, especially as we had all hoped that by doing the right thing, would be we would get back to normal. But the truth is, is that while you are vaccinated fully uh, at a lower risk, there are unfortunately still many others in the community who have not had the chance to be vaccinated and they remain susceptible to severe illness, hospitalization and death. And I'm not going to play, you know, I'm not Tommy Lee Jones here from The Fugitive saying, I don't care. Of course I care. Of course I don't want people to be sick or hospitalized or to die. But there's only so much you can ask of people. Reducing contacts, working remotely, fully vaccinated people should be going back to offices in a safe and distanced fashion. And companies are more than willing to accommodate because they know that working remotely is fraying a lot of people's nerves. 
Here are the comments from Dr. Lowe uh, yesterday about keeping up not just appearances, but basically reversing a lot of the progress we've made, even as vaccination rates grow. Continuing to work remotely if you can. Keeping gatherings small and favoring the outdoors. Avoiding larger gatherings and crowded indoor spaces with poor ventilation. And considering virtual visits instead of in-person visits. To be clear, the science table did not call for broad closures across the community to reduce contacts at this moment, and I fully concur with that current assessment. I also know that we are all tired of this, but for now, with so many residents still susceptible, all of us must remain vigilant as we move through this turbulent final part of the acute phase, regardless of our vaccination status. No, no. Like, I reject that advice. I have to reject that advice. And why? Because I have to look out for the people that are closest to me. I have to look out for my family, the people that live in my house, for my neighbors, for you, the listeners, for my work colleagues, for, um, you know, kids that, uh, you know, kids that want to go have sleepovers now who are fully vaccinated. And of Lawrence Lowe, of Dr. Lowe, again, I have tremendous respect for him. I think he's been a leader through this. I think he's said things that some chief medical officers of health haven't had the courage and haven't had the uh, foresight to say and to see. He was an innovator and a leader when a lot of people were whistling past the graveyard in April, when basically none of us were vaccinated. He closed schools when a lot of people weren't going to do that. He was on this a few days before Dr. Eileen DeVillo was. He just was. But you cannot give that messaging out yesterday and make people feel that we're going to a better place. You're also making people trust the vaccines less. You are. And that's a huge problem right now. That's a massive problem in the states with us all this talk about boosters here and there celine gounders this brilliant infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist she was on joe biden's transition team and COVID advisory board here's her quote the recommendation on booster shots came from the top public health officials in the country and it was based on science there oh this is a white house official i should say here's her quote they're caving to anxious americans who want as many doses of the vaccine as possible because they're fearful of what breakthrough infections could mean and if you look at who votes and who their constituent constituency is that's their constituency the white house fires back and says no that's the recommendation from top public health officials but if lawrence lowe is going there dr lowe and i want to get your thoughts on this at 289-975-1640 if he's telling you now, I want you to think about this before you text in. If the Peel's top doctor is saying, work remotely, avoid large gatherings, reduce your contacts, have a virtual visit instead of a real visit, and this is all advice for fully vaccinated people, then teleschools aren't safe. Just do that. Just do that right now. Why hesitate? Why beat around the bush? Tell us you think the schools shouldn't even be open. Because why would you say... One doesn't fit with the other. This is the old Sesame Street game here. That does not jive with a lot of people. That schools are good, but a, but a visit among fully vaccinated people is not? That coming back to the workplace where it's safe, where it's distant, where you're going to be among fully vaccinated uh, colleagues is also not safe? Then tell people to close the damn schools. Tell them now. Our text line is 289-975-1640. That's 289-975-1640. I'm sorry, I can't get behind this advice. And I also cannot feel empathy much longer for this concept and this narrative that people have not had the chance to be vaccinated. You've all had the chance. You've had months to be vaccinated. This isn't about 
access anymore. It may have been at some point in time in April, May, or June. It hasn't been for months. This is you choosing not to get vaccinated. I chose to. Most of you chose to. We're getting our stuff back together, and the rest of you can catch up with us when when you're ready. But we're going back, and we're doing the things we're doing, and we're not we're not going backwards. We're only going forwards at this point, while understanding that we have to show patience with those who haven't yet. But you're not taking stuff away from us now that you promised us. This was not the deal. This was not the transaction. This was not the bargain that we made with you to do all the lifting and do all the work the last 18 months. No way, no how. The English language debate is on at 9 o'clock. There is that, and it's right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto as well. Prior to that, and let's hope heading into the debate, we are celebrating a Canadian woman for the second time in third years, three years, in the U.S. Open final. Layla Fernandez uh, will play Sabalenka from Belarus, the number two seed, who's never been in a Grand Slam final herself. Um, so this is really, really intriguing. I wanted to bring on former Canadian number one. Uh, she got as far as the quarterfinals in 1996. And my gosh, it, it, the tour was so deep then, so deep then with future Hall of Famers, superstars. Uh, and she made the semifinals of the Australian Open in 1987 as well. A WTA um uh, WTA winner in Taiwan in 1986, so her accomplishments are many. You often see her on uh, the coverage of Rogers Cup as well um, with my good friend Eric Smith, with our good friends at Sportsnet. She is Patricia Hiboulet, and she joins me now on Toronto Today. It is great to have you on. Thanks for making the time to do this today. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Uh, happy to. You know, let, we're going to talk about Layla. I, we're all fascinated by it. Listen, when Magic Johnson is tweeting about you, uh, that means you're uh, you're making an impact uh, globally. But I mentioned that about your uh, your heyday in the '90s, and I always say this: uh, what a deep field. What a uh, I was I was at a lot of tournaments then in Toronto. I was able to cover Wimbledon a couple times. Uh, you'd see your draw, Patricia, and you'd be like, "Okay, so this is how it is." It was a really deep tour at that time. Oh, absolutely. But you know what? Every generation gets deeper, though. That's what it feels like. And every generation, they're younger coming up. That's where we are right now. How much pride do you take in seeing what has developed? Uh, John McEnroe was raving about it the other night. Um, It's been well documented. There's not been a male Grand Slam winner since 2003 when Andy Roddick uh, won the U.S. Open. And, And we all thought he'd win more. And just this this triumvirate, right, of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Andy Murray uh, won some slams as well. But how much pride do you feel in watching what Bianca's accomplished, watching Layla right now? Um, you you blaze some trails for for other Canadian women. Helen Kelsey did that. Carling Bassett did that even for, for someone like yourself. There's been a progression here. Uh, well, absolutely. You know, it, it, I feel like we should have more Canadians, uh, you know, that's making them that. But we are seeing the... It's, flock of players coming through Canada, but you know, I'm in New York right now, so you're doing some broadcasting mm-hmm. here for the for the USTA, and I've known Layla for a few years, maybe five or six years now, and you know, a lot of people looking at Layla, as you can very well see, you know, she's missing the five, six inches on her, and missing 50 pounds on her, so it was easy for people to write her off because she's so small, but when I first met her, you know, it was what struck me with Layla was that how early she was able to take the ball and how good anticipation she has. Because obviously, quickness on the court helps, but if you can see the ball that much earlier, your quickness is now going to become a weapon. 
And that was similar when I saw Bianca back in mm. 2000, I think, 16 or 15, somewhere in there. So I, we just moved back to Toronto at the time, and I was at the 16th Nationals in Montreal. I am just waiting because my son was living as well. So I was waiting. I was watching Bianca. I didn't really know her at the time. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, it's a typical, you know, coaches, you know, have their hats on when they're at tournaments. They're just sort of not really scouting, but just really watching, you know, which other upcoming could have the potential. So I'm watching Bianca play, and she lost that match. But I said to my husband, my gosh. She had unbelievable hands. Her recognition on the court was by far the best in the entire draw. Even, you know, she lost, I think it was the quarters. But, you know, there's certain qualities that you see in players. And, of course, you don't have the crystal ball, you know, seeing where they go. Mm-hmm. But they are certainly, um, you know, whether it's anticipation, where it, whether it's recognizing the high tennis IQ. But one thing that is for sure is the drive the drive mm-hmm. to get the most out of themselves. That's what I see in Layla as well as Bianca. Patricia Hiboule is our guest, former Canadian number one on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I mentioned your uh, your, your doubles results. You go through all the way to the quarterfinals in 1992, um, and you play Monica Sellis uh, at the U.S. Open. Here's the top six seeds. This is Monica in her absolute prime. Steffi Graf in her prime. Here's the other four top seeds for our listeners. Martina Navratilova, still such a threat at that age. Gabriela Sabatini, uh, Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario, and Jennifer Capriati, all multiple Grand Slam winners. Again, just a minefield. I want to ask you if you see in a post-Serena world that it's all for the taking there, right? Naomi Osaka's won a few Grand Slams. Sabalenka is a good player, but for Bianca and now for Layla, this is a this is a really open scenario, unlike the men, as I documented, where it's just been hard to break through against these these three legends that have stuck around. Well, you know, it, it's fantastic. We need that. We need that so much in the, in the women's tennis right now. It was so dominant, even though there were, you know, six, eight... Um, players on the top there, but they were also dominant. It was almost like one-sided when you watch them on matches. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's going to be Serena. Oh, yeah, it's, it's going to be so-and-so, right? But <laughs> now with this new generation, and I tell you, when Layla was uh, scheduled, uh, I guess she was playing Naomi Mosaka, her third round. Mm-hmm. She was scheduled after Alcaraz. And, of course, Alcaraz won his match against Sister Pass. And I said to my colleague at the time, I said, you know, as a player, the match in front of you has a bit of an influence on your mindset. Because here's an 18-year-old male player taking out Sissipas, you know, and, and psychologically you're thinking, well, you know, I feel good. Maybe I have that chance too. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, you get the Coco Golf, you know, and, and just a, a, a handful. But that number, handful, is going to increase to two handfuls. I'll ask you a very relatable question since you mentioned Sitsipas, and everybody, I think, was talking about it after. Uh, yeah, you know where I'm going with the Andy Murray five-setter. Andy Murray had the famous quote, it's never taken me 20 minutes to go to the bathroom. He was complaining to one of the officials. And I think outside of Sitsipas's direct relatives and maybe his girlfriend, Every billions of people on the planet were hoping Andy Murray would pull that match out. I'll ask you, is there more gamesmanship now, gameswomanship, when you play? There feels like there's a, there's a lot of, there's a big opening for wiggle room and stalling tactics. It's almost like soccer. We're, we're questioning legitimate injuries now. It never felt like that when you were playing Steffi Graf or Monica Sellis. It didn't feel that way. 
Oh, absolutely. You're, you're, you're right on. In fact, this is the first time. I mean, yeah, tennis is on TV a lot. I, and I watch a lot of it when I can travel. <laughs> I have never noticed such gamesmanship in any tournament. Like somehow, you know, okay, let's face it. We all know there's a lot, always drama in New York at the Open, for sure. But this year, though, like, you know, and, and I don't ever remember these men walking off the court to change the shirt. <laughs> ever. Ever. You know, and then, okay, here's a kicker. You know, we're talking sportsmanship. Yeah. So there's that serve clock, okay? 20, 20 seconds. Okay, serve clock. Most players turn around to the ball boy, the, the towel, whatever, and then they quickly get to the line and then serve. This is, watch, watch for this. Djokovic, he quickly goes from one side to the other. He bounces the ball like 15 times. Right. He is controlling that reverse, uh, in reverse. You know, so he's he just like, of course, mm. he didn't, he's not breaking any rules. You know, he's within his serving clock time, for sure. But and imagine, you're the returner. You're standing there, you're thinking the service, you're the serving, you're getting ready mentally. But then you're standing right there for 15 seconds. You know, it breaks your momentum. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. He, and he knows what he's, yeah, he knows what he's doing, uh, when he's doing it. So we're, I'm really curious to get the the lay of the land for, for Canada. We've got all this incredible momentum. It it had to be harder for you. It had to be harder for players in, in the nineties that were sort of lone wolves, if you will, um, carrying the flag. I mentioned Helen, I mentioned Carling. Um, we've got these two tremendous female players. We've had three or four great male, male players starting with Milos Raonic about a decade ago. Um, and we know we're seeing more demand for the game, but then the pandemic comes. And I know um, it's been really, really difficult uh, based on that. That said, tennis being a distant sport, kids have been more likely to pick up a tennis racket um, than they've been able to because they can't play hockey and they can't play basketball and they can't play inside playing their school sports. So what are you seeing on uh, on the ground floor in terms of tennis being embraced? And it sure, it sure isn't this rich kid sport anymore. I was a middle class kid and my parents spent money for me to play indoors when I was a kid but it's more affordable now than ever for kids. It really is. Well, it is more affordable, but tennis still remains to be extremely expensive when, if you want to play to a very high standard. Right. Because it requires a team around you. It requires the traveling to, you know, outside the country to get that experience so you're not always playing at home in that comfort zone. But here's the thing where, you know, Canadians right now, you know, when I'm talking to the players or whoever, you know, coaches and my colleagues here, I was like, you guys don't understand. Canada was in a lockdown until two months ago. Toronto has the most lockdown this year. You <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you noticed. I've said that a few times. Yes. <laughs> right. And I said, you know, look at tennis. They were sending policemen patrolling the courts to make sure people don't play on these public courts. You know, so they were like, no way. And I'm like, yeah. So tournaments only started back up, you know, in Ontario, what, about a month or six weeks ago. So that is really, um, for me, it's really challenging for Canadian players because you need competition. And on top of that, because we didn't have the National Open, mm-hmm. to, and that was the main resource, funding for the development, and, you know, there was no more tournaments. Bianca, Layla, and Felix, Dennis, you know, they had the, the pleasures of receiving wild cards when we had these startup pro tournaments in Canada. But those are gone, you know. So 
there is, and, and then that so that's a problem right there. So now the question to your to your question is how do we encourage connect more Canadian players to go out and play? Um, there are this while we have this sensational breakthrough from Layla, Bianca, Dennis, and Felix, I'm also seeing that when parents in Canada, they have this impatience, a, a outrageous impatience right now that their kids must be good next year. Their kids should be at so-and-so standard right. because they are behind. So what do they do? They keep, they keep changing programs. They keep jumping from coach to coach. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know how many how many coaches I had throughout my entire 18 years on the tour? Two. Two. All right? <laughs> I, I, and I'm like, you've got to weather the storm with the coach. And then you have a third problem, you know, lack of tournaments. And mm. then the parents keep changing um, the, the, the kids, the coaches and programs. Now the third, the third issue is when you become a, the top player of a club, for mm. example, they are being recruited by the federation, taking them away from where they get comfortable, where they would develop. You know, it takes time. It takes years and years to develop to a certain point. What, a kid starts playing, what, eight years old? And then they start playing, ten, you know, tournaments at 10. And then they maybe make their market going when they are 13, 14. You're looking right there alone. It's five years. And then to take a kid out of the environment of growth, you're asking them to change again. Very difficult. Well, I'm always, always thinking of how can I help Canadian players? Uh, my wife and I watched uh, a, a, a soccer technical director who's not currently our kid. Our kid is 13 and plays at a decent level. And it, when, when they were all 10, the coordinator comes in and he says, okay, who wants information about college scholarships? And my wife and I just roll our eyes and we're like, all these hands shoot in the air. We're like, they're 10. So it's happening. Exactly. It's not just with tennis. I wish it, I wish it wasn't with any of these sports. There's, we got to have patience. We got to remember they got to have fun. And, and the, if the pandemic's taught us anything, uh, boy, we need kids to, to get up, get out and move it's safe to do that it's safe to be outdoors and we got to be encouraging that i got to leave it there i loved talking to you i absolutely loved it i hope you enjoy the match tonight and you're a big reason that uh that this is happening that you blaze these trails in the 90s for these young girls thank you for doing this thank you so much have a great day Lori writes in via text 289-975-1640 what an atrocity that's one of my favorite words Lori. um i could have written this myself what an atrocity putting a pause on extracurriculars for schools the night before school starts, high school kids are vaccinated. Sports and camps have run all summer. Most activities are outside in September. You're, you're checking all my boxes, Lori. Frankly, this is just cruel. Joanne writes, why can't outdoor extracurriculars be allowed? This decision is poor from Eileen Davila and John Tory and lets down our kids. An allowance for outdoor extracurriculars should be made now. Yeah, exactly. Um, all extracurriculars are not created equally. That's putting it bluntly. Our next guest, uh, I'm so glad I, uh, I was able to come across his path uh, on uh, the Twitter machine. Um, I find his, uh, his COVID stuff really forthright, really practical. He's a pediatric infectious diseases doctor, a malaria researcher as well, the Ryan White Professor of Pediatrics uh, in Indiana. He is Dr. Chandy John. It is great, Dr. John, to have you on. I appreciate you making the time for me. Thanks. It's great to be on. I see you're also a massive Michigan Wolverines fan. So am I. Go blue. Um, how did that happen? And how does that go over? How does that go over in the great state of Indiana? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I am. I was uh, born in Detroit, uh, and um, I grew up in Michigan. And I went to Michigan for undergrad and med school and residency. And so did my uh, my my 
sister and my brother also went there for undergrad and med school. So we're a very dyed in the wool Wolverines fan. Uh, and yeah, it's not super popular here in Indiana, <laughs> but we're going to have to put up with it. <laughs> my kid was born in Michigan, in Livonia, Michigan, and I worked there for 10 years. So we'd cover games. I met my wife at a news conference in Ann Arbor. They were firing the athletic director. I sat down next to her and I needed uh, I needed a date at some point in time in the near future. And we're uh, 21 years later. Here we are. But uh, yeah, the big house, something else. Um, I, I, I think your writing has been really practical. Um, and, and I've really enjoyed uh, coming across you and discovering you. And I mentioned this as well. You can imagine in Canada, we've got kids going back to school. We've got a high population of 12 plus vaccinations. We've had, we've had good uptick in terms of vaccines, but we've got parents worried about the Delta variant. What, what are most parents saying to you about their level of concern? And, and I find we've got just two pandemics now among households. We've got the fully vaccinated household, the healthy household that wants to go back and and get what we've lost in the last 20 months. And we've got parents of younger vaccinated kids, which I appreciate that are that are a little a little hesitant based on the variant. Yeah, it's um, I I wrote the tweet because it's hard. There are people that position themselves at both extremes and both things are true. It's true that even with the Delta variant, it doesn't look, it's way more contagious. So you're more likely to get it, but it doesn't look like it makes you any sicker. And most children still do well with coronavirus. The overwhelming majority have relatively mild cold symptoms or maybe a little bit more severe, but don't even need to visit the ER and do fine. Uh, On the flip side, um, because of the increased infectiousness, we're seeing a lot more kids here. Our, our rates of COVID are, are far higher than mm-hmm. I think anywhere in Canada because we have a much lower vaccination rate, unfortunately. So we're seeing a lot more kids with COVID this time around than we've ever seen. Um, we happen to have an RSV outbreak at the same time. It's off season because uh, we, we didn't basically get it in the winter because we were under lockdown. And so the hospitals are just overflowing. Um, we have kids on the vent with COVID. Um, and so I tried to strike a balance between inappropriate fear mongering about, oh, the COVID is going to kill your kid because it's very, very, very rare to have a death from uh, COVID in a child, which I'm very happy to say. But on the other hand, um, a lot more kids are getting sick from COVID. Um, and so the importance of doing everything that we can to avoid it and avoid kids going to the hospital and avoid the quote unquote collateral damage of kids that don't have COVID but have cancer or a bad chronic condition and can't get into the hospital because the hospitals mm-hmm. are overflowing with COVID kids. Um, that's why I, I wrote the tweet to emphasize that most kids are going to do fine. So parents shouldn't be freaked out about this, but they should be doing everything they can to get themselves and their 12 plus year old kids vaccinated because it's the best way by far to decrease case numbers. Dr. Chandy John joining us on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, Was the concept of it becoming, as it's been described, a pandemic of the unvaccinated? When When Delta started to take its hold, was this rather predictable that, of course, we would see this with hospitalizations and ICUs? It started to make case counts. I would make the argument less relevant um, because a fully vaccinated, non-asymptomatic person of good health might be a case. Maybe he or she has to test for work or test for travel um, or, or test for this and that. Those numbers aren't nearly as significant um, as an unvaccinated 
uh, symptomatic person that's all of a sudden headed to the hospital in a big hurry because of how transmissible Delta is. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, the one thing about that, it's absolutely true that if you're vaccinated and you have uh, COVID-19, you're way less likely to go to the hospital and you're and you're less likely to transmit. But vaccinated people can transmit. And this is where sort of nuance is difficult because uh, then people say, well, what's the point of getting a vaccination? Like, why did we even bother? But it's your risk of severe disease is 90 percent less. Uh, your risk of transmission is substantially less. Exactly how much less is not known. Uh, and so uh, what really does matter is how many symptomatic individuals are coming in and uh, filling up hospitals and emergency departments. Dr. Chandy John is our guest. Um, where we go with the idea of a booster, there's been great debate. I follow Dr. Celine Gounder. I, I think she's brilliant. She was on uh, Joe Biden's uh, COVID task force, as was Andy Slavitt. So it's great to, to know all these names and and see what they're saying now. And and Dr. Gounder now is pushing back towards the administration saying, if anything, we are amplifying the noise about the booster. And it happened in Canada, Dr. John, in that everyone said, well, maybe you need a third COVID booster. And all of a sudden you've got, well, no, a healthy 25 year old who's uh, (laughs) killing it at the gym, who has no comorbidities. He doesn't need a booster, but yeah, maybe your 81-year-old grandfather does, or maybe someone coming off a, a lung surgery does. Like, I I worry that we're losing the plot about A, who needs a booster, Dr. John, and B, you're going to do just what you said. Let People will start to wonder if the actual original vaccines were doing their job if you tell people they need even more and more. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think that point about um, a phased-in approach to boosters where people that are at the highest risk, both because they're at higher risk for complications and because their immune systems are uh, less effective uh, with vaccine uptake, um, or because they're at highest risk of exposure, um, like those groups would be prioritized for a a booster. What I'll say is that there's pretty good um, evidence that after six months, immunity does wane slightly with the current vaccinations and but your protection against severe disease and hospitalization is still incredibly good Um, but that waning slightly is a bit more pronounced in older people uh, and certainly in immunocompromised people and so it's a prior when we need boosters they would be the priority i think honestly that eventually we may need boosters uh, sort of across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that day is not now. The priority now should be getting people vaccinated in the first place. And as you say, younger people who are healthy um, will probably do fine with the current vaccination scheme. I, I got one more one for you. Um, and and I think it's, it's, a, it's a great message to amplify to uh, parents of kids with asthma. You documented it yesterday in a tweet that you found a study, and I, I apologize because you may not have it in front of you right now, so the Colesnose versions are just are awesome because that's that's how the rest of us non-medical folks do speak. Kids with asthma are not at a higher risk for worse outcomes with COVID-19. What are the basic fundamentals of the study? That's, and it's a relief to a lot of parents to hear that. What are the basic fundamentals of that study? Yeah, so this study uh, essentially looked at Uh, children with asthma, and how often did they come to the emergency department, how often were they hospitalized, how often did they go to the ICU, uh, and compared that to, um, uh, you know, the sort of baseline rate of kids without asthma. And they found that kids with asthma were not at higher risk for all of those things, for going to the ED, for being hospitalized, 
uh, and for um, for needing uh, ICU treatment. And so that mm-hmm. was a surprise. We were all worried about kids with asthma having higher risk. Um, but uh, the study, I mean, in any medical situation, we like to do randomized control trials and things like that. For something like asthma, obviously, you can't do that. So this was the best observational study, I think, that could be done. Um, but it's supported by other studies as well that children with asthma don't seem to be at higher risk for uh, complications. This is different from adults. There's some data that adults with asthma have a higher risk for complications, but this was a pretty well done study, and that was a big relief to us. And I will say that just in clinical practice, we've seen the same same thing uh, at Riley Hospital for Children. We have not seen a lot of kids with asthma coming in. So it was a big worry because you would think with underlying, you know, lung problems, they might be at higher risk, but it doesn't seem to have uh, panned out that way. Dr. Chandy John, pediatric infectious diseases expert professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. What a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Great thrill to have you on. I really, we didn't have time to get into Jim Harbaugh's contract extension. Next time, I got a lot to say about this and I, you know, uh, you got to do what you got to do sometimes. But we all hope this would go better. Let's just let's just I don't want I don't want the program going backwards and neither do you. Yeah, that's the truth, Greg. <laughs> I was I was a student when uh, Jim was a quarterback okay. at Michigan. So we all hope for the best. But uh, yeah, it's not quite quite panning out as we hope. Well, I'll make you laugh. The first year I covered them, I'm working in Windsor. I get a season pass and media passes in the 97 year. So you can imagine your first times at the big house are that unbeaten year with, with Brian Greasy, a quarterback, and Woodson winning the Heisman. I, I can't even tell you. And then going yeah. out to the Rose Bowl, my God. Like, uh, that, what a great introduction to Michigan football and, uh, and 110,000 people. Um, thank you very much for doing this. I hope we can do this again. And I really, I know how busy you are. I appreciate your time for uh, making it for our listeners. Yeah, my pleasure. So great talking to you, Craig. Packed night coming up tonight. Tons of sports. You got the Blue Jays. You got Layla Fernandez. Uh, the sport of debating. Uh, Dave Bradley's here for what happened when. How's your French, by the way? Oh, it's very good. Is it really good? I was actually born in Quebec, so yeah. And so, do you, are you able to keep up? Uh, for the most part, when they start speaking over each other, I'm like, wait, what? Uh, yeah, it's hard to follow. But some I mean, people that's are better the same with all languages, really. Some people are better writing it than talking it. Are you better at? Uh, can you like read it better than you can talk it? Uh, I probably the same for both. Oh, so you're equally uh, yeah. excellent at it, Rob? Any French? Can no, you handle it? Sadly, no. So, <laughs> yeah, but you have to take it to a certain point in time. There must be. Some Ella, can you order off a menu? God, no, no. <laughs> Stop taking it like over 25 years ago. I know that. Yeah, 11th grade, I think. You know, we make people keep up for their driver's licenses, right? No, we make all these old grade. folks do that. Yeah, it's true. And uh, we don't do that with French. The, one, the one's a little ninth more important than the other. Me. Ninth grade. Ninth grade, 30 that's it? years ago. I didn't think you could drop it after ninth grade. You could in Catholic school in Waterloo, I guess. Jeez. See, my dad and I used to always talk French with each other, thinking nobody else could <laughs> understand us until we went to Sudbury. And there's a big French population there. And we were like, uh-oh, because everybody I was us. surrounded by angry El Salvador fans last night, and I was trying to figure out what the swear words were. Like, they were... <laughs> They were down two nil after eight minutes, and there was some there were some words. I'm like, I think I know what that word is. Yeah, you can almost tell by the tone. Uh, all right, what happened when on September 9th? Well, in 1950, this day was the first use of the TV laugh track. It happened on the Hank McCoon show <laughs> in the U.S. 
Bet you didn't know that. Hank had a show on 640, I think, for yeah, a while. Just it didn't, a little while. It didn't really pan Yeah, out. no, it didn't. It was uh, a cancel culture. The, <laughs> Hank fell a victim. It was ahead of its time. <laughs> Did laugh. he have a laugh track for that? It didn't uh, didn't translate well on radio, apparently. Do you guys think the shows, some work better with... Now, There's you could, you could have nothing, right? Like how um, Modern Family was a show like yeah. that, right? Where it's just... Supposed to be funny on its own. The Curb enthusiasm like the same. Yeah. Um, or, or then you got the live audience, which was every show it felt like in the 70s and 80s. Or, but then uh, you watch old reruns of like Family Ties or whatever, and I assume it's a laugh track, not a live audience. I'm not sure. I always thought it was a laugh track too, yeah, for sitcoms, but I, I think it's okay. I mean, it's sort of forced. You know, it's like laugh here, please. And you're like, oh, okay, that's funny. Rob, can we work in a laugh track for maybe the 8 o'clock hour of the show sure. in case anything yeah. happens that's actually amusing on it? Of course. So, there, there's like, <laughs> yeah, let's record your laugh there right you there. <laughs> By the way, there's somebody recorded John Candy's laugh. He has a very distinct laugh, and if you listen to some sitcoms, sometimes they're playing it, and you can hear John Candy's distinct laugh, um, almost like the SCTV character Johnny LaRue in a lot of sitcoms. That's great. A lot of sitcoms you hear John Candy laughing as part of the laugh track. Wait till they filter in the Kawhi Leonard laugh <laughs> from his press conference. <laughs> I like that. Classic. You know, today's the International Sudoku Day. You ever done it? You ever completed one of those puzzles? Not once. Um, but I've known people that are obsessed. Speaking of, like, when you're taking public transit, there are people, they do it the whole ride. Yeah. The whole ride. Yeah, and I assume good. there's an app for it now. What about you? Yeah, it's gone from newspapers to apps for sure. I, I have never even attempted it once. I saw it. I looked at it. I'm like, I don't get it. So <laughs> I'm just like, forget it. I'm going to go to the word like word find or whatever it is. The guy at Words with Friends? Wonder Word. Yeah, there it is. What is Wonder Word? You don't remember Wonder Word? It was the word search uh, in the comic section oh. of uh, the paper. Apparently, so you circle every letter because then at the end you get a magic word. <laughs> That's, right. That's what the wonder word is. But it's mixed up and you have to figure it out. Sudo- Sudo- no, no, it goes in order. If you oh, do really? the letters in order, it tells you the word. Yeah. If you wonder what the word Sudoku is, it's a Japanese word combining number and single. Hmm. They're so damn smart over there. They knew how to combine two words into one. Now, it's not even a compound word like hamburger. I'm not sure that's a good example of a compound <laughs> word. I'm hungry. On this day, 1956, that's when Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show for the first time. As a great philosopher once said, You ain't nothing Because that's what it sounded like. Oh my God. Anytime it's our, uh, Elvis Presley was on TV. Like anytime he had a studio audience, the women would just scream. But what's interesting about that appearance is they filled him or filmed him from the waist up. Because you remember how he used to rock yeah, his yeah, when yeah. he was playing me? Yeah, so they thought that was just horrible, and you can't show that on TV. He also sang to a real basset hound that ended up urinating itself on live TV. You're kidding me. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. About 54 million people tuned into that first episode. That's about 82.6 of the entire viewing audience available to TV at the time. I don't think I've ever been at a show where it's nonstop screaming, but that's that's why I don't think it's quite the case. So that's why the Beatles alleged that they just stopped touring. They couldn't hear themselves. Yeah. Even even as they got into that Sgt. Pepper era. Like the last tour they had was when they did all those baseball stadiums, the famous like Shea Stadium and they played Comiskey, but they stopped touring around what, 65, 66, and they're like, we can't even we can't 
We are getting migraines. It could have been also the LSD. It could have been that. Maybe a little bit. It's not. Yeah. But they stopped. I've never been at a show. I'm sure like New Kids on the Block shows were like that and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. But You didn't see Michael Jackson in I've, the 80s? No, I didn't. I've never been at a show oh. where people are screaming nonstop. I think I saw everybody. Even when I would go see Duran Duran, I didn't see them in their prime. Like right. 93 was, uh, was they're coming back and yeah. the audience is older and more mature. Way older, yeah. But it's not all 19-year-old girls screaming nonstop. No, for sure. You know, this band didn't get as many screams, but the number one single on this day back in 1986, Venus by Bar- Banana Rama. Oh my. You gonna let us have some of that, Rob? I know you want it. Um I did a regrettable. This was that whole stock Aitken Waterman era, which sounds like a law firm, but they were three producers. And there's a ton of songs that sound just like this. Like they produced Rick Astley. They oh, pro- yeah, okay. They produced uh, Kylie Minogue's first stuff, like The Locomotion, which was a hit. It's all uh, Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Round. See, I hear It this all song, sounds like this. I hear this song, and I keep thinking of the Razor commercial. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was totally, and it's still, I think it's still used to this day, isn't it? I did an, it is. I did an air band for this when these things happen, right? High school air bands, lip sync things. And me and two other guys did the three members of Bananarama. Are you even allowed to do that now? Probably not. <laughs> Pro, it, I, like, we didn't put any uh, anything on it. But I, I remember, I think I borrowed a bra and I had like oranges in it. Wow. I. It's it's a good thing there's no video. It could have been mandarins. It's so de- it's demeaning. I know women are like that's demeaning. I'm like it was, it was pretty demeaning for me to be up there also doing that <laughs> with mate with lipstick on and and oranges in on my chest. Yeah, it was pretty demeaning for me also. All right, Dave, great stuff. Thanks very much. Hope you enjoyed the Toronto Today podcast. Really do appreciate you checking it out and for listening to the show, 530 to 9 on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. A reminder, we're carrying tonight's English language debate live and it's in its entirety at 9 o'clock Eastern time on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. And I'll be back Friday morning. We'll talk a lot about September 11, 20 years beyond that fateful, terrible day, September 11, 2001. What it meant to us then and how we can reflect on it now. Peter Mansbridge is amongst our guests, so I hope you can listen tomorrow on the show. Thanks again for listening to this. Have a great day.